This is an important week for us at Trinity because this is our last week. Did you hear that? Last week we are meeting here at this location. Yeah, that's okay. You can clap for that. You can uh, be excited about that. We are looking forward to moving into our new facility uh, over on Sullivan, um, 2818 North Sullivan. Uh, Somebody who printed it put 2808. It's 2818 North Sullivan, which is where the office complex is. And uh, we're excited about moving into that building next week. Also note, our services next week, our service next week begins at 9 a.m. Don't clap so much for that one. But 9 9 a.m., and that will be a permanent change. We will begin meeting at 9 a.m. starting uh, next week. We do have uh, this Saturday, April 1st, we have an opportunity for you to gather with us and pray in the new building. Before we start moving things in, we're going to gather together and pray together, uh, commit that space to the Lord and to his work and to his gospel. And so I I invite you to come at 9 a.m. It's not going to be, we're not going to have food and coffee and all those types of things. We're not, we're not, it's not going to be a big event. We just want to pray together. We want to pray together in that space and dedicate it to the Lord before we start moving things in. And then if you could stick around and help move some things in, that would be really nice of you. If you have to go, that's fine too. Um, Next um, Sunday will be our next members meeting as well. We will have our next members meeting there in that space at 530 next Sunday evening. And that's an important meeting. We're going to be receiving some new members into uh, our body, into our church. And so we're looking forward uh, to that. Make sure you're there April 2nd, 530 in our new facility. One last announcement before um, we introduce our speaker this morning. These yellow cards, we've printed up 250 of them, I believe, and I'm wanting to run out of these. I'm hoping that we have to print some more of these. These are invitation cards for our Easter service, April the 9th. Invitation cards, especially for our Easter service. Last year at Easter, we weren't able to make a big to-do about it and invite a lot of people because we didn't uh, really know where we're going to be meeting and all those things, a little instability there. And so this year, because we know where we're going to be meeting, because we know when our service is going to be and where it's going to be at, we're asking you to make a special effort to invite people to that Easter service this year. So the cards are back there. I'm I'm only going to say only take the number of cards that you intend on passing out. If you take cards, just commit to passing them out and giving them out to people, inviting them to our service there April the 9th uh, for Easter. And I'm hoping that we see uh, some people who are lost there. We're going to talk about the resurrection and the hope that we have in the resurrection. And we're wanting to see people who do not know Jesus come to that service and be introduced to him as their Lord and Savior uh, that week. We're also, and this is, this is new, hot off the press, we are also planning on having a Good Friday service that Friday there in that new building, okay? Again, we're, we're, it's going to be very simple, but we want to invite you to, to a Good Friday service there Friday um, March 31st, is that right? That would be the date of it, March 31st, April, or uh, March 31st before Easter, Good Friday service. And hopefully you're able to make it to that. There'll be more information on that. Oh yeah, April 6th. That's why, that's why it was April 7th. That's it. No, April 7th. That's the Friday. So April 7th. That's why you don't talk about things you don't have written down. So... April the 7th, Friday night before Easter, and uh, we're going to have a good Friday service there at our new facility. We just took our offerings together and talked about that as an act of worship that we, that we do every week because we want to reflect who we worship. Part of gathering offerings is the goal of supporting missionaries. We want to support those that are going out Uh, going to regions and countries and places where we cannot go ourselves. And we want to emphasize that. That that needs to be a priority here at Trinity Church is sending missionaries out. This morning, we have invited uh, Jared and Claire Milliken and their family to come. Uh, Jared has been on staff at Faith Bible Church now for several years. He's ran the college ministry there. And uh, I thought it would be good for him to come and present his ministry to us uh, and let us know what he's doing in the Czech Republic and what he's planning on doing there. 
so we can know how to pray for him and so that we can also know how to pray about supporting Jared and Claire potentially. And so I'm going to invite Jared to come. He's going to spend a few minutes presenting the work there in Czech Republic, and then I'll come up and pray for you before you preach. Yeah, you got this. Good morning, Trinity Church. It is really good to see you all. Uh, As Paul said, I'm at Faith Bible Church in the other part of Spokane, uh, and you are a part of Faith Bible Church in a lot of ways. It's so encouraging to see a lot of familiar faces, um, so exciting to see what God's doing at this church already. A lot of you, I have never seen your faces before, so it's also encouraging to see you because this church is growing, and and we've heard of the health of this church uh, just by a word of mouth. and, and our elders interacting and pastors interacting. So it's, it's extremely exciting to be here with you all. Um, as, as Paul said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a minute before I preach this morning um, and talk to you about some aspirations that my wife and I have had for about 10 years now uh, to be in the Czech Republic. And I just want to tell you how we've gotten to where we are, uh, why we need to go there, and why now um, is, is my goal to just kind of help you understand this morning. Uh, for a minute. So uh, Paul said it's dangerous to talk about things you haven't written down. I'm going to do it anyways. Um, But this has been on my heart for a long time, so I think that should go okay. Um, So I grew up in Spokane, Washington, and uh, from probably the age of 13 or 14, uh, I began to become interested in missions through trips to Russia and things like that on, on missions trips. Fast forward to my senior year or so of high school, and I'm very interested in, in ministry, um, in pastoral ministry. Um, that's part of our church's philosophy is that they're always training up men to send out. And I thought, I might want to be one of those guys. Um, about my freshman year of, of college, um, a man ma- named Marcus Denny, who is a missionary in the Czech Republic right now, sent out by Faith Bible Church and another church in California and a couple others here in Spokane that support him. Marcus came back to Spokane on furlough uh, and just shared what, what are the existing needs in the Czech Republic. What needs do they still have? He, had, at that time, had been there about four years. Um, and the main thing he kept emphasizing was, we, he said, I just need more help. I need someone to help me teach. I need someone to help me preach. I need someone to help me train and disciple. The church is inevitably going to grow eventually. And that sparked my interest um, that day about, about 10 years ago. Um, and I had thought of several other countries before that time. Um, but the Czech Republic is the only country that has stuck in my brain. And I think the element that was missing in the other countries that I had considered was someone to go work with. Marcus and Amy Denny at that time, the Czech Republic had been there about four years. They've been there about 15 years now. And the need remains. The need remains. Um, Marcus and I kept contact as I went through seminaries, I went through college and, and all of that, um, about once a month, maintaining contact. And through the entire 10 years that we've been talking, the need has remained. Um, a handful of people have come and checked it out to, to see if they want to help, and then they've come back. Um, one couple is there now helping as well, but they could use yet another um, pastor and pastor's family to, to come help them. So the history of this, this little church that we're going we're gonna to join, and I do mean little, um, is is long and slow. Uh, you can think of it that way. Um, I'm, I'm talking about why we need to be there um, now. So can, can picture a church plant, which you guys can easily do. A church plant starting of about probably 10 people. Eight years into that church plant, that church is at about 25 people. 10 years into that church plant, the church is at about 50 people. And now 15 years into that church plant, the church is about 75 people. 15 years, 75 people. And that speaks a little bit to the nature of how the gospel, um, what gospel progress looks like in, in the Czech Republic. And I could tell you a lot about the history of the Czech Republic and why gospel progress can tend to be slow there sometimes. A lot of it has to do with communist background, uh, just the, the domination of a government version of Roman Catholicism dominating the country for hundreds of years at one point. Um, communism from the 40s to the 80s, all of that. Um, makes it all so that many of the people in this country are either atheist um, or agnostic of some sort or a flimsy version of Catholicism or Protestantism that is really just ecumenical and they, and they invite every kind of teaching. There's no firm gospel taught in any of the churches. So here we have, realistically, just to get to the point of what this church is like, we have a church of about 75 
first-generation Christians. First-generation Christians. I, I don't know how many first-generation Christians there are in, in this body here. But picture yourself at the age of 30, and you just got saved because you just heard the gospel for the first time um, in the last year or so. The majority of the church is, is like that. They range from you know, the, their 20s up to their 80s um, as far as their age goes. But the majority of them, I can, I can confidently say, probably 85 to 90% of the church is first-generation Christians. Now picture that this one pastor has been there for 15 years, and he's been trying to shepherd and counsel and, and disciple and encourage 75 first-generation Christians. <laughs> That's a lot of work for, for one guy. Um, it's a lot of work for, for any pastor to shepherd and train and disciple in, in, in any church, but you make it a church of first-generation Christians, and there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, anything from family discipling to theological equipping to learning how to study God's Word on your own to evangelizing to how to pray, all of these things, people being taught for the very first time. And, and that kind of speaks to why we're needed there. Not because I'm amazing at those things, not because I'm perfect, not because I'm the example of how to do those things well, but because Marcus just still needs help. So that kind of speaks to, to why now, why, why are we going now? Um, like I mentioned, the, the church is at about 75 people, um, and they're, they're bursting at the seams, believe it or not, uh, and the dingy, grungy hotel room that they, or hotel kind of lobby meeting room that they meet in, they're starting to burst out the seams. And one of the encouraging things is that there are a lot of young families, much like this church, a lot of young families in that body, which means there's lots of kids, there's lots of almost teenagers, there's a handful of teenagers, um, and there's a lot of young families, and there's still no one in the church aside from Marcus helping disciple and lead and train. So, why are we going now? Because the church needs equipping now more than it ever has. It needs discipleship now more than it ever has. And the long-term goal of, of this church is to be yet another church plant. Um, that, that's how missions should be done, is, is for the sake of church plants, for the sake of natives running the church. And that is, that is Marcus's goal. That's my goal as I come to help him, is that we could, we could raise up men within the current church to be deacons and elders and pastors and, and raise up godly families in the church to be a little subset that we could send out into another part of the Czech Republic to begin filling the Czech Republic with more churches. Something interesting to, to know about that is, when I, as I've talked to Marcus pretty consistently over the last 10 years, uh, a common statistic from his experience there and conversations he's had with fellow Christians there is he, he says confidently, I can count on one hand how many Bible teaching churches there are in the Czech Republic. Country of 12 million people, probably five churches like this one here. And 75, his church, that's a big church in, in the Czech Republic. So really those other five are probably even smaller uh, than, the Czech Repu- uh, than the one that Marcus is at. So imagine... Spokane being, I don't know, 60 square miles or something like that. Imagine five churches only in Spokane, 60 square miles or so. Does that sound about right? See, I just made that number on the spot. Someone Google it. 60 square miles. Now picture an entire country of of 12 million people and about five churches faithfully teaching the word of God as the all-authoritative scripture, as inerrant and as all-sufficient and that just shows that there, there's just so much need left in the Czech Republic. So why we're going now is because Marcus needs to train up elders and deacons and pastors and people to be sent out. Um, and we're shooting to be there in about a year from now. Um, around June of, of 2024 is our goal. My role is, as we show up, Lord willing, is to uh, relieve Marcus however I can. Um, namely, the specific areas would be to, to preach once a month for him um, through translation as we, as we learn the language, uh, which is a grueling language, um, but preach once a month for him through translation so that could free him up, he and Amy, his wife, to do more discipling and counseling, maybe some more equipping classes for those who are interested in, in equipping. That would be one role I would fulfill. Uh, the other would be to, to teach equipping classes myself or to help write curriculum or to at least help write just outlines and, and things like that for equipping classes and then to teach them myself as well through translation until about five years in where I might be comfortable speaking like I am right now. Uh, maybe seven years. We'll see. Um, and then the third role that, that really 
my entire family would, would fill. Me and, me and wife would be, me and my wife, Claire, would be to be discipling young families. Again, we're not a perfect young family. We're not perfect husband and wife. We're not a perfect mother and father. Um, but we've been, we've been raised up in a wonderful church. Um, we've been discipled and, and trained by very godly people in our life. And, and Marcus and Amy see that we would meet an extreme need there to have discipling um, of young families uh, in their church. So I would love to talk more, but that's, that's a short snippet of, of what we'd be doing um, in, in the Czech Republic. And if you could pray for us, we'd love to be there by June of 24. Um, and I'll just be, I'll just be bold and, and just repeat what, what Paul said. We would love for you to consider to, to support us. Um, we do have a, a prayer card um, back there if you want to come see us. We're kind of in the back row right there. Um, we'll give that to you, but uh, we, would, we would covet your prayers and your support, however you would be willing to do that. So thanks for letting me share about that. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Thanks for coming and presenting. We're looking forward to hearing the word preached. Now let me pray for you. Father, again, we praise you. We glorify you. Um, You are worthy of every praise that we can give. All creatures are yours. This world is yours. The Czech Republic is yours. The people there rightly belong to you, to worship you, to glorify you. And our desire is that there would be people there who come to a saving knowledge of your son, King. That their lives would go from serving vain idols to serving the true and living God. And we pray for people to be sent to that place for churches to be started for believers to be strengthened for your gospel to go forward and we pray that our culture here at Trinity Church would be constantly seeking to proclaim the gospel to call people to repentance and faith to see true conversion by your spirit's power And we pray for that in the Czech Republic. I pray for Jared and Claire as they prepare the language training and financial needs, all the things that go into getting ready to go, family preparations and all of that. Lord, they need your grace. They need to be able to see you and your grace and your mercy. I pray that you'd give them eyes to see your goodness in all of this process. And that they would grow in their trust in you and their confidence in you and strengthen the families already there for this work. Encourage them as they've been there 15 years and have seen slow progress and can be very discouraged at times. I pray that you would give them eyes to see you and the glory and the beauty and the worth of your son and that it would encourage them to continue and remain and endure. We pray for all of these things, again, for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. All right, I get the, the privilege of also opening God's word with you guys. Do you guys stand when you read the word here? Awesome, please stand. <laughs> uh, we're going to be in First uh, Corinthians chapter 1. And I like to give uh, the, the title and, and main idea before I read the passage. That way, as we're reading, uh, you can kind of get an idea of, of where, this, where this is going to go and how we might need to understand this passage. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. And the title I'm giving this message is Brought to Nothing, Given Everything. Brought to Nothing, Given Everything. And the main idea I believe we need to get from this passage is that the wisdom of God makes disunity unthinkable in a church through a unified standard of boasting. The wisdom of God makes disunity in a church unthinkable through a unified standard for boasting. So let's read 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. I'm going to pull an audible. Let's start in verse 18 for a little bit of context. 
1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here's our passage. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, things that are as nothing, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. At Faith Bible Church, we say this is the word of the Lord. And so do you. That's wonderful. All right. You may be seated. Let me pray one more time as we get into it. Oh God, we look at a wonderful passage that reminds us of how worthy Christ is of our boasting. We love to boast, God. We, we love to boast in so many things. Ourselves being chief among those things. Our intelligence, our abilities, our wealth. God, your wisdom is so much greater. The reasons you give for true boasting are so much greater. God, I pray for Trinity Church. Make this a church that boasts as a church in Christ. Make this a church that boasts individually in Christ. Make this a church that boasts in its families in Christ, in its workplaces, its relationships. Make this a church that makes it so clear that Christ is greater than anything the wisdom of this world has to offer, oh God. Lord, remind us of how gracious you've been to us this morning as we come to your word. Remind us how much you've forgiven us. Remind us how you've brought us into your family. For those who are in Christ this morning, you've brought us into your family, not because of anything we've done, but simply because you are good and you are kind. God, use your word through me this morning to encourage this church, to strengthen this church. May you be praised. Amen. I've come to appreciate uh, the band City Alight. Last time I mentioned that band name, someone said Cellulite? <laughs> no, <laughs> not Cellulite. Nobody would name their band Cellulite, I hope. Maybe you guys sing some of their, their songs here. Uh, the band City Alight, I bet you do. Um, and there's one song in particular that I think is noteworthy uh, that I'll read, a, read you a line from. The song is called Good and Gracious King. Here are a couple lines from that song. They say, you deserve the greater glory. Overcome with joy, I sing. By your love, I am accepted. You are a good and gracious king. You deserve the greater glory. Overcome, I lift my voice. To the king in need of nothing, empty-handed, I rejoice. Trinity Church, Christ deserves the greatest glory in your life. And in this church, 
this morning. Christ deserves the greater glory in my life. And if a church is going to be unified under that kind of a conviction, it needs to be a church made of people who joyfully, willingly come to the throne of God's grace empty-handed. Dependent on Christ, dependent on the grace of that king. The passage we're going to look at this morning is in the second stage of proving how God's wisdom makes disunity unthinkable. That's just my way of saying, but if you were to look at the last few passages, you would would see what I mean. Uh, Verses 18 through 25, as I'm describing this, maybe just skim the verses. Verses 18 through 25 show the wisdom of God as it has been proven in the message of the gospel. The wisdom of God as it's been proven in the message of the gospel. Verses 26 through 31, where we are this morning, show the wisdom of God as it is proven in the recipients of the message. Those who have received it. And then chapter 2, 1 through 5, shows the wisdom of God as it is proven in the preacher of the message. God's wisdom is proven in the message of the gospel itself. It's proven in the recipients of the message of the gospel. And it's proven in the deliverer, the, the preacher of that message as well. And the reason Paul finds it necessary to lay this out this way because, is because of the first issue he addresses in the letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians, which is found in verses 10 through 17. We won't read it. But the, the issue being discussed and addressed is the issue of disunity in a church, and that church specifically. And the sort of disunity he's addressing has to do with some differences of opinion and preferences the church members were having. They were disagreeing and picking sides over who their favorite preachers were. Interesting. There was disunity because the church members were putting their confidence and even their identity in the wisdom of man rather than in the wisdom of God. Paul then told them why this is a bad idea, why it's wrong, because of verse, what verse 17 says, chapter 1, verse 17. Why is this wrong? Why is this a bad idea? For Christ did not send me, Paul the Apostle, to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It's not about the preacher. It's not about the, the herald. And yet that's what they were disagreeing and picking sides over. So essentially what he's saying in that verse, in verse 17, is if we're choosing what message we will receive, not just what sermon, but what message, what meaning we will receive, based off of who is speaking and and how well they speak it and how entertaining and how impressive and how intelligent the speaker is. And then if we're also determining how true or believable or compelling it is based off of those things, then we are letting the cross of Christ and the message of the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's the issue. And so what what you would notice if you read through chapter one is that Paul doesn't take it upon himself to help them pick the right side, pick the right preacher. No, no, this, this, yeah, listen to this guy. He's way better. Of course, Christ was one of the options. So that would be a good option. You could pick Christ for sure with the right heart motives. They were even to make wrong heart motives out of picking Christ as the best speaker, the best teacher. But that's not his goal. He's not trying to help them pick the right side. He doesn't care to help them determine who really is the smartest or, or the best or the most intelligent. Instead, he's most concerned with helping this church, help them see that their boasting is completely misplaced. It is out of place. Their confidence is misplaced. Their identity is misplaced. And he wants to show them something better. He wants to show them a unified standard for boasting. Because as it turns out, the Corinthian church was operating quite heavily on an unreasonable standard for boasting, which would be a major cause for disunity in a church, wouldn't it? Think about it. Even if major doctrines are agreed upon in a church, even if philosophy of ministry is agreed upon in a church, even if theological systems are agreed upon in a church, what good are they if none of them cause you to boast in the Lord? but instead in your own intelligence, in your own resourcefulness, in your own knowledge? What if the flow of unity that should be happening in a church around those kinds of convictions is being clogged up by a sense of self-sufficiency and arrogance and being puffed up? That's a big problem. 
for unity in a church. So let's see how the Apostle Paul wants us to arrive at a unified standard for boasting in our passage this morning. Again, that's our, that's our big idea for this morning. The wisdom of God makes disunity unthinkable through, an, through a unified standard for boasting. So I'm going to give you three proofs that God's wisdom makes disunity unthinkable through a unified standard for boasting. Three proofs that, that God's wisdom makes disunity unthinkable through a unified standard for boasting. Proof number one is found in verse 26 of our passage, and it's this. Proof one, your calling proves God's wisdom. Your calling, if you're a believer in Christ, saved in Christ, proves God's wisdom. And we can think of calling in terms of that time where God effectually and finally drew the sinner to himself for salvation. Your calling proves God's wisdom. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Your calling proves God's wisdom. And this is the third time Paul has used this word call just in this chapter. Back in verse 2, he addressed them as those who were called to be saints with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 24, he told them that while the cross is folly to those who would reject it, to those who are called and drawn to the Father, both Jews and Greeks, the message of the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so now in verse 26, Paul bids the Corinthians to consider how there is proof of this power in their very calling. He's proving that the cross is the power of God and that this power comes from a far greater wisdom than the world could ever stir up. He's proving that the extent to which this powerful calling has an effect on a person's soul is not dependent on the world's standards of wisdom and foolishness. And note, this, this wisdom the wisdom of God that's being spoken of here, it's not necessarily the kind of wisdom you might think about when you think of the book of Proverbs or something like that. And, and that's not the way that the Corinthian church was thinking about wisdom either. When they were thinking about who's wise, who's worthy, this wisdom and foolishness that they're talking about is more on the level of determining really human worth, human intelligence, human usefulness. You're wise if you're useful to the world. You're wise if you are intelligent in the world's sight. You're, you're wise if you are worthy of honor in the world's sight. That's kind of how the church was thinking about it, and Paul is correcting this idea of wisdom. So as Paul bids the Corinthian church to consider their calling, he gives them some options to choose from. Were you like this? Were you like this? What were you like when God called you? And as he does that, he points to fleshly, man-made standards for measuring wisdom. Interesting. So what are the gauges that the world uses to judge wisdom and foolishness? And Paul is addressing the worldly standards in order to just show them that even their own logic is out of step with the truth of the gospel. So what are the gauges that the world uses to judge wisdom and foolishness? Paul, Paul wants us to think about this so we can understand how God's standards are just far different. Far different. He's mentioned them before in verse 20. If you look there, these standards, the wise, the scribe, the debater, the wise being, you can think of philosophers, the scribe being scholarly writers of the time of the Corinthian church, the debater, you could think of the impressive orators and politicians and teachers of the time. Those are wise people in the world's standards. And now in verse 26, Paul sort of answers to his very own question that he asked in verse 20. Where is the wise? Where, where are these people? He answers his own question. Where, where are these people among the called of God, the people of God? And then he points to the Corinthian congregation. And he says, well, not many of you were like this, right? This doesn't describe you, Corinthian church, Trinity church. This, this might not describe you. These things he listed off in verse 20 and in 26. This might not describe you. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, more literally, the flesh. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Okay, so what are you getting at, Paul? That's a little offensive. <laughs> are you calling us stupid? What's, what's the deal? That's not what he's doing. He's not trying to be offensive. He's being just very literal 
and very practical. That's all he's doing. He's trying to show that the reason that they, the Corinthian church, were able to receive the message of the gospel with clarity and conviction and understanding had nothing to do with their intellect. Had nothing to do with their intellect. He says so in in verse 26. You guys, you weren't wise particularly. You weren't particularly powerful or of noble birth. So let's walk through those. What What does he mean by those? Wise, powerful, noble birth. Not many of you were wise. Think of your own calling, when you, were drew, when you were drawn to Christ, were you wise? Not many of you are the philosophers of this age, are you? The, the thinkers, you could say, the, the originators of new ideas in this age, are you? I'm not. <laughs> That's for sure. It's a dangerous position to be in. You could think of Rene Descartes, people like that, if you've heard of them. Immanuel Kant, Friedrich Nietzsche, people like that. Or a little more modernly, I have no idea who most of these people are because I'm not among the wise, but I recognize a few of them. Maybe you do. People who are wise by fleshly standards today. Kwame Anthony Appiah, Alain Badiou, Simon Blackburn, Robert Brandom, Tyler Burge, Judith Butler, Nancy Cartwright, David Chalmers, Noam Chomsky, Andy Clark. Does anybody know who those people are? I think I recognize like two of them. Okay. You can go Google them or don't. It wouldn't be very helpful. But these are the kind of people that our society looks to for new psychological and and philosophical and scientific insights into the current existence of man. These types of people. All kinds of scientists and philosophers and things like that. No one in the world is looking to Christians for that kind of stuff, for for philosophical insights and psychological insights and scientific insights into the current existence of man. No one looks to the average churchgoer for that, right? That's just not how, how it works. No one looks to us for that. Not many of you were wise when you were called. Not many of you were powerful. The next one in verse 26. Not many of you were powerful. This just means influential. Were many of you extremely influential in, in the current era when you were called to Christ? I, I mean... I don't know everyone here. Maybe some of you were in some ways. But on the majority, that's not how it works. Not, not many of us Christians are changing the tides of the culture by the, by the culture's standards. Not many of us are growing a following, except maybe for our cooking hobbies on Instagram and our travel hobbies and our craft hobbies and our dog hobbies and things like that. Not many of us are growing a following Not many of us are making an impact on politics or socioeconomics. How how many of you have been quoted by some of the best-known podcasters? I haven't. None of the pastors I know have. Paul's kind of saying, you haven't been very influential around here, have you, Corinthian church, as far as the world standards go? Very few believers are of such wealth and have such social political leverage that they have power to influence the culture by the culture's standards. This just doesn't describe most of us. (laughs) Not many of you are of noble birth, verse 26 says. Put another way, not many of you have a proud pedigree. You don't belong to a wealthy ruling class, the, the blue bloods. Again, I don't know many of you here. Maybe some of you do, and that's great. But the sum total of all these descriptors could be not many of you were among the elite believers. That's just not, that's not believers usually. The ones who set the standards, the ones who run the economy, who determine who succeeds and who falls. And the point Paul is getting at here is that none of us are like this. That's the point. When the word of the cross is proclaimed, these are not the sort of people that come running to the cross, usually. It's not that they're excluded from the message of the gospel. Goodness gracious, no. They are welcomed by the message of the gospel, and every man must be saved by the message of the gospel. So he's not saying that these types of people are excluded by the message. He's just saying, in a lot of senses, they tend to excuse themselves on the majority. And his concern, as he's bringing this up to the Corinthian church, is that the values of the culture in which the, the Corinthian church lived had inched their way into the values of the church. And they were creating divisions like, like water seeping through the foundation of a house. 
separating it. They too, even in this church, the Corinthian church, were like the world. They were becoming a kind of people who measured the value of their lives by how they compared to some special class of people. And the way this was happening was when the Corinthian church, it seems, they they would look at their own spiritual leaders and, and then they would choose to bandwagon with whichever one had the sort of charisma that was respected in the world. And they felt this would give them reason to boast. But there's a problem with that. A boastful attitude is guaranteed to breed disunity in a church. It's guaranteed to breed disunity in a church. Once I've elevated myself above you, or once you've elevated yourself above me, any supposed act of love or mercy or service or generosity or whatever it might be, it's simply that. It's, it's just an act. My goal, if, if I'm elevating myself above you, my goal is no longer love. My goal is no longer faithfulness. My goal is me. How do I look when I do this? How do I make myself feel when I do this? What do you think about me when I do this? Pretty soon, whether our boasting is external or internal, whether it's openly expressed or we simply have this perpetual desire inwardly to be noticed, whatever form it takes, boasting will force a wedge between what unity could exist in a church. And none of us are unaware of how that happens. I've taken part in that. I'm sure at some point you've taken part in that. People in your life have taken part in that. We're aware of how this works. So how should we consider our calling? That's what we're told to do in verse 26. And I'm spending, you'll, you'll notice, the majority of our time on this first point because it's where the main command is in this passage. Consider your calling, brothers. So how should we consider our calling? We, we need to recall, truly, honestly, what we think about what our calling was like. Was there anything in me that made me able to respond to the call of God on my own? Anything at all? Was I especially wise? Did, did I understand the simple words of the gospel better than the next person? Did you? Or was it more like just suddenly, one day, after having heard it many, many times, all of a sudden, you just believed. It just happened. God caused it to happen. Is that more what it was like? Should be. I think in theory, none of us would, agree, uh, none of us would disagree. None of us would say we were anything special, that we're anything wise. We wouldn't say we've figured out God all on our own. We, I don't think most of us would say that. I don't think most of you would say that. But in our practice, we should consider how often in our practice we might forget that factor of our calling. And we should consider how we're walking in our calling right now, today, day by day, relationship by relationship, decision by decision. Let's think about it in various outward forms of boasting and inward forms of boasting. Where in that quiet place of our heart might we think wrongly about this, even in the mundane ways? Not many of you are wise. Why, why, why might we need this reminder? Maybe we've overlooked some outward forms of boasting. It's the sort of, if you only knew what I knew, kind of boasting or sense. It's, it's the, you'll get it one day, kind of boasting. I'm getting into our kitchen a little bit here. Another form could be anger. Perhaps it makes you angry when you're corrected, when sin is addressed by someone else in your life. Does that make you angry? You might respond in anger because you're so wise in your own sight. I'm so wise in my own sight, and it's offensive that someone else would think any diff- anything differently. <laughs> I'm angry that I would be corrected. It's the sort of boasting that makes sure others know just how different you are from the rest. I don't know why people think blank is such a big deal. I've always thought about it this way and look, I'm doing fine. And without saying it, but with saying it, you've sort of said, look what I've figured out that everybody else is still stumbling over. Not many of you were powerful, influential. Why, why might we need this reminder? Inward forms of, bo- outward forms of boasting might be Outwardly expressing when we think we deserve recognition for something we did. This could take the form of maybe passively finding a way to get people to notice something you've done. 
It can take the form of getting mad when we aren't noticed. (laughs) That should mean something to someone. What I just did should mean something to someone. How did nobody notice that? (laughs) That's a form of boasting. Anything that begs credit or attention is a form of boasting. Inward forms of boasting. Perhaps you think, I remember when I mentioned that advice to that person about a year ago. Looks like they're finally coming around to my idea. It's a form of boasting. (laughs) Guilty. You might not always say it, but maybe you think it sometimes. If people really knew my family, they'd understand that we're a lot different than everybody thinks. If people really knew my family and all the good things we did, they'd be coming to us for marital advice. They'd be coming to us for financial advice. They'd be coming to us for public versus social. Uh, I can't even. Public. Social, what am I trying to say? Public school versus private school. There we go. I don't know why I mixed the words there. They'd be coming to us for that kind of advice financial advice, future advice, if people really knew what our family was like. I was obviously public schooled because I couldn't even think of the word for private school. We might think these are minor forms of boasting. In a sense, they are. They're not explosive, right? They're not explosive. But they do reveal that we think something about ourselves that isn't warranted. It's not warranted. That we're just fine. That we're better. That we don't need what others need. It's a challenging thought. And I wonder if, as the Corinthians were reading this letter, because that's how the message was delivered, it was being read to them out loud, they're all sort of looking around at each other thinking, oh man, he's kind of right. There's nothing too impressive among us. There's nothing too great among us. You don't have much going on for us, which could be discouraging, right? That could be discouraging. Or it could put us exactly where we need to be to be unified under a common standard for boasting. To be humbled in that way and to be shown those things might be discouraging, or it could be what we need to put us right where we need to be for unity around a common standard for boasting, a better standard for boasting. And that's what Paul's getting at. He wants to bring them around a unified standard for boasting. And so as Paul's about to reveal all of this to them, he has bad news and he has good news about this. Here's, here's the bad news. The bad news, God doesn't call anyone on the basis of what they have to boast about. God doesn't call anyone on the basis of what they have to boast about. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. God doesn't call anyone on the basis of what they have to boast about. That's the good news. You aren't called on the basis of what you have to offer. You're not called on the basis of what you have to boast about. That's good news. And that's the emphasis Paul is going for here. His his aim isn't to just tell the Corinthians how ashamed of themselves they should be. He's not just saying merely stop all your boasting, though he is saying that, of course. Paul's calling the Corinthians and, and us and you, Trinity Church, to remember our calling and how we were called and what we were called by. It is good news that God chooses. It's very good news that God chooses because what do we have to offer that God would want from us except our our pride and our sin and our boasting? But here's what Isaiah 66, 2 says, and this is the one to whom I will look, says Yahweh, to the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. And that's why God's choosing also proves God's wisdom. First point is that God's calling proves God's wisdom. God's choosing also proves God's wisdom. That's our second point. God's choosing proves God's wisdom. God only calls to salvation those whom he has chosen for salvation. God only calls to salvation, draws people to salvation, whom he has chosen for salvation. God's choosing proves God's wisdom. And this is different from calling. Calling was about when God draws people to himself, but choosing comes, from, comes before calling. Choosing is when God handpicks who will be saved. He handpicks who will be saved. Read verses 27 through 29 with me. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now with those verses, there's a point to make and there's, there's a warning to give that Paul's doing here. The point to make is a very simple one. What we would expect in any fleshly terms to be the basis for God's choosing, God says, not me, I do things differently. <laughs> I do things way differently. Verse 27, God chose what is foolish, weak, low, despised. God chose that which is equal to nothing. That's what that phrase, even the things that are not in verse 28 means. Things equal to nothing. And these are in direct contrast to verses to verse 20 and 26, which listed the wise and the scribe and the debater and the powerful and the, those of noble birth. So the point Paul's making with this for who is it that God chooses? God chooses the foolish because the wise thought the cross was a foolish way to save the world. God chose the weak because the strong thought they were powerful enough without God. God chose what is low and despised because the high and mighty did not care to lower themselves to the level of a crucified man on a cross. So God, knowing man's heart would be like this before time began, knowing that this would be what man's heart was like, because he knew sin would enter the world, he designed his plan for salvation in such a way that no man could be better off without him. He designed his plan for salvation in such a way that no man could be righteous without him. He designed his plan for salvation in such a way that no man could be sufficient for himself and no man could possibly earn eternal salvation or the forgiveness of sins on his own. That's how God designed it. That's the point to be made. And so a warning comes pretty naturally out of all of that. Here's the warning to receive from verses 27 to 29. Shame. That's the warning. Shame. Not a moral, social shaming. In fact, this type of shaming should be understood in more of eschatological implications. Judgment. We see this kind of language all over the Bible. All over God's word. Psalm 31, 17. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Isaiah forty-one, eleven. Behold, all who are enraged against the Lord shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against him shall be as nothing and shall perish. That's the kind of shame he's talking about. This, this is what it's talking about when it says in, our, says in our passage, God chose the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Paul uses the, the same, some, some language of the time and, and that kind of phraseology to say in verse 28, God is going to think, take the things that are as good as dead, essentially. Things that are, are not to cause the final destruction of the things the world considers to be worth something. The things that are. In a later passage, chapter 2, verse 6, he uses similar language. He says, the wisdom of this age and the rulers of this age, they are doomed to pass away. This is God's word. <laughs> The wisdom of this age, the rulers of this age, doomed to pass away. Why will God do this? Why does God operate this way? So that, verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Not in themselves, at least. Believe me, when, when there, there will be a day that comes where we're in the presence of the Lord with all of the nations and there will be boasting, but it will be in God. It will not be about us, right? And this is how it's always been. This is how God has always chosen to work. Always. It's always been about God. It's always been about God choosing God saving, God sanctifying, God giving success, and all of it is to point to God. That's how he's always operated. In choosing, it's about God. Write down Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 7. In choosing, it's all about God. God says to Israel, his chosen people, this is what he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
And you might think Israel's starting to feel pretty good about themselves <laughs> as they hear that from Moses. And then he says, It was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Okay, then, then God, why, did you, why do you choose your people? But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath. It's about God. That's 100% about God. <laughs> it's because I love you, and I said I would, so I'm, I'm going to do it. It's about God in saving. It's about God in choosing. It's about God in saving. Psalm 106, verse 8. Right after the psalmist recalls how God called Israel out of Egypt and rescued them despite their unfaithfulness to them, he says, it says, yet he saved them for his name's sake. He saved them for his name's sake. That he might make known his mighty power. It's about God. Saving is about God. Salvation is about God. It's about God and sanctification. Isaiah 48, 11. God tells Israel that he has refined them like fire to purify them through trials. Why do trials happen in our life? Why does refining happen in our life? He tells them why he's done this. He says it twice. For my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. This is why I sanctify you. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will give to no other. In our successes, it's about God. Take the story of Gideon's 300 men from Judges 7. Maybe you've, you've heard this story. God takes Gideon's army from 22,000, a pretty sizable army. God takes Gideon's army down from 22,000 and through a series of instructions and things like that, he takes that army down to 300 men. From 22,000 to 300 men to go up in, against an army of 135,000 Midianites. 300 <laughs> 135,000. And how do they defeat the Midianites? <laughs> by blowing trumpets, by smashing jars, and by lighting torches. And then the Midianites turn on each other and destroy each other. Now, do you think Gideon, the leader of his 300 men, went back to his, his homies back home and said, dude, we just blew trumpets and everyone died. It was amazing. You should have been there. No one would believe that. Absolutely nobody would, would believe that. It's crazy. <laughs> exactly. God chooses what is foolish, weak, and even strange to gain victory. <laughs> so that he receives all the credit. So that we would see just how great he is. Well, verses 28 through 29 in our passage say the same thing. God chose what was low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that, the flesh, so that no flesh may boast in the presence of God. And really, to say that it's just so that God gets the credit, that's a bit of an understatement. It, it's really to show how incredibly great, how incredibly powerful, and how incredibly wise God is far and above everybody else. And this is clearly true in our salvation as well, brothers and sisters. It's about God. 1 John 2.12 says, Our sins were forgiven for his name's sake. It's about God. So where should we aim our boasting? Where do we aim our boasting? It feels like we're left with nothing. Our third point answers that question. Again, the main idea, wisdom of God the wisdom of God makes disunity unthinkable through a unified standard for boasting. And if boasting can be a positive thing, and it can be, if the object of our boasting is worthy. Boasting is a positive thing if the object of your boasting is worthy. God proves his wisdom through our calling, our choosing, and now he proves his wisdom through Christ. God proves his wisdom through Christ. That's our third point for this morning. This is where we find our unified standard for boasting. Read verses 30 to 31 with me. Christ proves God's wisdom. Verse 30. And because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. <laughs> What do these verses show us? If it wasn't clear already, here's something it shows us. They show us that boasting in anything other than God himself can only be done by someone who has little to no understanding of the grace of God. 
Boasting in anything other than Christ can only be done by someone who has little to no understanding of the grace of God. Whether it's little to no understanding in a moment of sin and choosing sin or, or just period, little to no understanding of the grace of God. When verse 30 says, and because of him, it's saying from God, you have these things. It's the same sort of language seen within the rest of the chapter. 121 says you were saved by God. 124 and 26 says you were called by God. 127 through 28 says you were chosen by God. In other words, theology grenade, elected, predestined by God. Our salvation is from God. Now, how did God do all of this? Why was it even possible in the first place that anyone could ever be chosen, called, and saved? Why is it possible at all? Answer. And from God, you are in Christ. That's why it's possible. Christ is the reason. Why was Christ so important? Goodness gracious, what, what a great question. Why is Christ so Important. Verse 30 answers that question. It's because Christ became to us wisdom from God. Christ became to us wisdom from God. And this isn't just saying Christ, Christ showed us what it really means to be wise. That's not what it's saying. Christ showed us what it really means to be smart. Christ showed us what it really means to be powerful and, and influential. That's not what it's saying, though he certainly did that very, very well. <laughs> What, that's not the wisdom this is talking about. This is the wisdom of God that brings man's wisdom to absolutely nothing. Zero. Insignificant. This is Ephesians 3, 8 through 10 kind of wisdom. You should write that passage down so you understand the wisdom of Christ. Ephesians 3, 8 through, 8 through 10 wisdom. This is the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is the mystery hidden for ages in God that needed to be brought to light for everyone. This is the manifold wisdom of God, which brings to shame not only self-proclaimed wise men of the flesh, but rulers and authorities of the heavenly places. That's the kind of wisdom it's talking about. This is the wisdom of God that shatters the power of sin. This is the wisdom of God that obliterates the plans of the evil one. It destroys the bonds of slavery and it drowns the fear of of death in the depths of God's love and grace. That's what God's wisdom does as it's revealed in Christ. That's what makes it so great. That's what verse 30 says. What does verse 30 say? We have in the wisdom of Christ. Imagine a, a, a colon after the word, um, after the phrase wisdom from God, colon. Here's what wisdom of God in Christ looks like. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Brothers and sisters, that is the wisdom of God applied to your souls in the past. That is the wisdom of God applied to your souls in the present. And that is the wisdom of God applied to your souls in eternity future. That's what that's talking about. The righteousness of Christ given to us when we were regenerated to new life in him, past. Sanctification in Christ sustained in us as we're kept secure in the strength of his hands, present. And redemption in Christ fully realized when Christ who is our hope appears and we appear with him in glory, future. That's the wisdom of Christ made known to us from God. What fleshly wisdom gives eternal joy, eternal security like that? Nothing. So what could any person possibly boast of when their wisdom is put next to that? (laughs) What could we boast of? Now just listen to how this all pieces together. Listen to how this wisdom plays out to prove that disunity on the grounds of boasting within a church should be unthinkable. Verse 30, from him, from God, we are in Christ. The things that were nothing because of Christ have now become something. And it's because of God. In the case of our salvation, the ones who thought they were something were brought to nothing by God's gracious choosing. And these ones who, they lost themselves so that they could gain Christ, they were brought to nothing so that they could be given everything past, present, future in Christ. That's incredible news. It's no wonder then when we read passages like those in the book of Revelation, like Revelation 7, that all the angels in heaven, as they survey the nations that have gathered to boast in their Savior and their crucified and risen Lamb, they say, Amen, blessing, glory, wisdom, 
Thanksgiving and honor and power be to our God forever and ever. Amen. It's no wonder they say that. And so the only right question to ask after all of this is, have you been brought to nothing before God? Have you been brought to nothing before God? This is is the only way we can receive Christ is to be brought to nothing before him so that we can receive everything from him. Have you been brought to nothing before God? Our good and gracious king needs nothing from us in payment. Receive his grace. Receive his generosity. Blessed are the poor in spirit who see that they are spiritually bankrupt without Christ. Nothing to offer so that they can receive the riches of his love. Be brought to nothing now in in humility and repentance before God so that in the future he doesn't have to take everything from you. Give it all to him now. Or it will happen in judgment one day. Receive the riches of his love today if you have not been brought to nothing in Christ before the Father. Believers, can you imagine the disunity we will avoid if Christ is the unified standard for our boasting? Imagine the disunity we're going to avoid if that remains primary in our hearts. If we really want to make this unity in the church unthinkable according to the wisdom of God, then the one type of question we need to bring before our hearts as often as we speak is this. Am I boasting in the Lord? Two questions. Here's how your Christian walk needs to just coast. Am I boasting in the Lord? Am I helping someone else boast in the Lord? Love God, love neighbor. (laughs) If we're working on that, helping each other remember God's wisdom and grace toward us in Christ, past, present, and future. We're helping each other boast in the Lord. That should do the trick. That should maintain unity within the church. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how clear it is. We need your word. We need correction, and we also need reminders of hope. We need reminders of everything we have in Christ. Thank you for all that we have in Christ, who is wisdom from you. He's righteousness and redemption and sanctification to us, Lord. Help us to walk according to these truths in our own personal lives, in our families, and certainly within this church so that unity is maintained unto your glory. Amen.